Section 15 of An Editor's Tales by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Spotted Dog, Part 1, The Attempt, Continued. As soon as he was gone, we sat looking at the learned doctor's manuscript and thinking of what we had done. There lay the work of years by which our dear and venerable old friend expected that he would take rank among the great commentators of modern times. We, in truth, did not anticipate for him all the glory to which he looked forward. We feared that there might be disappointment. Hot discussion on verbal accuracies or on rules of meter are perhaps not so much in vogue now as they were a hundred years ago. There might be disappointment and great sorrow, but we could not with equanimity anticipate the prevention of this sorrow by the possible loss or destruction of the manuscript which had been entrusted to us. The doctor himself had seemed to anticipate no such danger. When we told him of Mackenzie's learning and misfortunes, he was eager at once that the thing should be done, merely stipulating that he should have an interview with Mr. Mackenzie before he returned to his rectory. That same day we went to the spotted dog and found Mrs. Grimes alone. Mackenzie had been there immediately after leaving our room and had told her what had taken place. She was full of the subject and anxious to give every possible assistance. She confessed at once that the papers would not be safe in the rooms inhabited by Mackenzie and his wife. "'He pays five shillings a week,' she said, "'for our wretched place round in Cucumber Court. They are all huddled together any way, and how he manages to do a thing at all there, in the way of author work, is a wonder to everybody. Sometimes he can't and then he'll sit for hours together at the little table in our tap-room. We went into the tap-room and saw the little table. It was a wonder indeed that anyone should be able to compose and write tales of imagination in a place so dreary, dark, and ill-omened. The little table was hardly more than a long slab or plank, perhaps eighteen inches wide. When we visited the place there were two brewers draymen seated there, and three draggled, wretched-looking women. The carters were eating enormous hunches of bread and bacon, which they cut and put into their mouths slowly, solemnly, and in silence. The three women were seated on a bench, and when I saw them had no sign of festivity before them. It must be presumed that they had paid for something, or they would hardly have been allowed to sit there. "'It's empty now,' said Mrs. Grimes, taking no immediate notice of the men or of the women. "'But sometimes he'll sit writing in that corner when there's such a jabber of voices as you wouldn't hear a cannon go off over at Reed's. And that thick with smoke you'd almost cut it with a knife. Don't he, Peter?' The man whom she addressed endeavored to prepare himself for answer by swallowing at the moment three square inches of bread and bacon, which he had just put into his mouth. He made an awful effort, but failed, and failing, nodded his head three times. "'They all know him here, sir,' continued Mrs. Grimes. 
He'll go on writing, writing, writing for hours together, and nobody'd say nothing to him, will they, Peter? Peter, who was now halfway through the work he had laid out for himself, muttered some inarticulate grunt of assent. We then went back to the snug little room inside the bar. It was quite clear to me that the man could not manipulate the doctor's manuscript, of which he would have to spread a dozen sheets before him at the same time, in the place I had just visited. Even could he have occupied the chamber alone, the accommodation would not have been sufficient for the purpose. It was equally clear that he could not be allowed to use Mrs. Grimes' snuggery. "'How are we to get a place for him?' said I, appealing to the lady. "'He shall have a place,' she said. "'I'll go bail he shan't lose the job for want of a workshop.' Then she sat down and began to think it over. I was just about to propose the hiring of some decent room in the neighborhood, when she made a suggestion, which I acknowledge startled me. "'I'll have a big table put into my own bedroom,' she said, "'and he shall do it there. There ain't another hole or corner about the place as it suit, and he can lay the gentleman's papers all about on the bed, square and clean and orderly. Can't he now? And I can see after him as he don't lose him, can't I now?' By this time there had sprung up an intimacy between ourselves and Mrs. Grimes, which seemed to justify an expression of the doubt which I then threw on the propriety of such a disarrangement of her most private domestic affairs. "'Mr. Grimes will hardly approve of that,' we said. "'Oh, John won't mind. What'll it matter to John as long as Mackenzie is out in time for him to go to bed?' We ain't early birds, morning or night. That's true. In our line, folks can't be early. But from ten to six, there's the room, and he shall have it. Come up and see, sir. So we followed Mrs. Grimes up the narrow staircase to the marital bower. It ain't large, but there'll be room for the table and for him to sit at it. Won't there now? It was a dark little room with one small window looking out under the low roof and facing the heavy high dead wall of the brewery opposite. But it was clean and sweet and the furniture in it was all solid and good, old-fashioned and made of mahogany. Two or three of Mrs. Grimes' gowns were laid upon the bed and other portions of her dress were hung on pegs behind the doors. The only untidy article in the room was a pair of John's trousers, which he had failed to put out of sight. She was not a bit abashed, but took them up and folded them and patted them and laid them in the capacious wardrobe. "'We'll have all these things away,' she said, "'and then he can have all his papers out upon the bed, just as he pleases.' We own that there was something in the proposed arrangement which dismayed us. We also were married, and what would our wife have said had we proposed that a contributor, even a contributor not red-nosed and seething with gin, that any best disciplined contributor should be invited to write an article within the precincts of our sanctum? We could not bring ourselves to believe that Mr. Grimes would authorize the proposition. There is something holy about the bedroom of a married couple, 
and there would be a special desecration in the continued presence of Mr. Julius Mackenzie. We thought it better that we should explain something of all this to her. Do you know, we said, this seems to be hardly prudent. Why not prudent? she asked. Up in your bedroom, you know. Mr. Grimes will be sure to dislike it. What, John? Not he. I know what you are thinking of, Mr. Blank, she said, but we're different in our ways than what you are. Things to us are only just what they are. We haven't time, nor yet money, nor perhaps education, for seemings and thinkings as you have. If you was traveling out amongst the wild Injuns, you'd ask anyone to have a bit in your bedroom as soon as look at em, if you'd got a bit for em to eat. We're traveling among wild Injuns all our lives, and a bedroom ain't no more to us than any other room. Mackenzie shall come up here, and I'll have the table fixed for him, just there by the window. I hadn't another word to say to her, and I could not keep myself from thinking for many an hour afterwards whether it may not be a good thing for men, and for women also, to believe that they are always traveling among wild Indians. When we went down, Mr. Grimes himself was in the little parlor. He did not seem at all surprised at seeing his wife enter the room from above accompanied by a stranger. She at once began her story, and told the arrangement which she proposed, which she did, as I observed, without any actual request for his sanction. Looking at Mr. Grimes' face, I thought that he did not quite like it, but he accepted it almost without a word, scratching his head and raising his eyebrows. "'You know, John, he could no more do it at home than he could fly,' said Mrs. Grimes. "'Who said he could do it at home?' and he couldn't do it in the tap-room, could he? If so, there ain't no other place, and that's settled. John Grimes again scratched his head, and the matter was settled. Before we left the house, Mackenzie himself came in, and was told in our presence of the accommodation which was to be prepared for him. It's just like you, Mrs. Grimes, was all he said in the way of thanks. Then Mrs. Grimes made her bargain with him somewhat sternly. He should have the room for five hours a day, ten till three or twelve till five, but he must settle which, and then stick to his hours. "'And I won't have nothing up there in the way of drink,' said John Grimes. "'Who's asking to have drink there?' said Mackenzie. "'You're not asking now, but maybe you will. I won't have it, that's all.' That shall be all right, John, said Mrs. Grimes, nodding her head. Women are all that soft in the way of judgment that they'll go and do almost anything, good or bad, when they've got their feelings up. Such was the only rebuke which, in our hearing, Mr. Grimes administered to his pretty wife. Mackenzie whispered something to the publican, but Grimes only shook his head. We understood it all thoroughly. He did not like the scheme, but he would not contradict his wife in an act of real kindness. We then made an appointment with a scholar for meeting our friend, and his future patron, at our rooms, and took our leave of the spotted dog. B. 
Before we went, however, Mrs. Grimes insisted on producing some cherry bounce, as she called it, which, after sundry refusals on our part, was brought in on a small round shining tray, in a little bottle covered all over with gold sprigs, with four tiny glasses similarly ornamented. Mrs. Grimes poured out the liquor, using a very sparing hand when she came to the glass which was intended for herself. We find it, as a rule, easier to talk with the Grimeses of the world than to eat with them or to drink with them. When the glass was handed to us, we did not know whether or no we were expected to say something. We waited, however, till Mr. Grimes and Mackenzie had been provided with their glasses. "'Proud to see you at the Spotted Dog, Mr. Blank,' said Grimes. "'That we are,' said Mrs. Grimes, smiling at us over her almost imperceptible drop of drink. Julius Mackenzie just bobbed his head and swallowed the cordial at a gulp, as a dog does a lump of meat, leaving the impression on his friends around him that he has not got from it half the enjoyment which it might have given him had he been a little more patient in the process. I could not but think that, had Mackenzie allowed the cherry bounce to trickle a little in his palate, as I did myself, it would have gratified him more than it did in being chucked down his throat with all the impetus which his elbow could give to the glass. "'That's tidy tipple,' said Mr. Grimes, winking his eye. We acknowledged that it was tidy. "'My mother made it, as used to keep the pig and magpie at Colchester,' said Mrs. Grimes. In this way we learned a good deal of Mrs. Grimes' history. Her very earliest years had been passed among wild Indians. Then came the interview between the doctor and Mr. Mackenzie. We must confess that we greatly feared the impression which our younger friend might make on the elder. We had, of course, told the doctor of the red nose, and he had accepted the information with a smile, but he was a man who would feel the contamination of contact with a drunkard, and who would shrink from an unpleasant association. There are vices of which we habitually take altogether different views in accordance with the manner in which they are brought under our notice. This vice of drunkenness is often a joke in the mouths of those to whom the thing itself is a horror. Even before our boys we talk of it as being rather funny, though to see one of them funny himself would almost break our hearts. The learned commentator had accepted our account of the red nose as though it were simply a part of the undeserved misery of the wretched man but should he find the wretched man to be actually redolent of gin, his feelings might be changed. The doctor was with us first, and the volumes of the manuscript were displayed upon the table. The compiler of them, as he lifted here a page and there a page, handled them with the gentleness of a lover. They had been exquisitely arranged and were very fair, the pagings and the margins and the chapterings and all the complimentary paraphernalia of authorship were perfect. A lifetime, my friend, just a lifetime, the doctor had said to us, speaking of his own work, while we were waiting for the man to whose hands was to be entrusted the result of so much labor and scholarship. 
we wished at that moment that we had never been called on to interfere in the matter. Mackenzie came, and the introduction was made. The doctor was a gentleman of the old school, very neat in his attire, dressed in perfect black, with knee-breeches and black gaiters, with a closely shorn chin and an exquisitely white cravat. Though he was, in truth, simply the rector of his parish, his parish was one which entitled him to call himself a dean, and he wore a clerical rosette on his hat. He was a well-made, tall, portly gentleman, with whom to take the slightest liberty would have been impossible. His well-formed, full face was singularly expressive of benevolence, but there was in it, too, an air of command which created an involuntary respect. He was a man whose means were ample, and who could afford to keep two curates, so that the appanages of a church dignitary did in some way belong to him. We doubt whether he really understood what work meant, even when he spoke with so much pathos of the labor of his life, but he was a man not at all exacting in regard to the work of others, and who was anxious to make the world as smooth and rosy to those around him as it had been to himself. He came forward, paused a moment, and then shook hands with Mackenzie. Our work had been done, and we remained in the background during the interview. It was now for the doctor to satisfy himself with the scholarship and, if he chose to take cognizance of the matter, with the morals of his proposed assistant. Mackenzie himself was more subdued in his manner than he had been when talking with ourselves. The doctor made a little speech, standing at the table with one hand on one volume and the other on another. He told of all his work with a mixture of modesty as to the thing done, and self-assertion as to his interest in doing it, which was charming. He acknowledged that the sum proposed for the aid which he required was inconsiderable. But it had been fixed by the proposed publisher. Should Mr. Mackenzie find that the labor was long, he would willingly increase it. Then he commenced a conversation respecting the Greek dramatists, which had none of the air or tone of an examination, but which still served the purpose of enabling Mackenzie to show his scholarship. In that respect there was no doubt that the ragged, red-nosed, disreputable man, who stood there longing for his job, was the greater proficient of the two. We never discovered that he had had access to books in later years, but his memory of the old things seemed to be perfect. When it was suggested that references would be required, it seemed that he did know his way into the library of the British Museum. When I wasn't quite so shabby, he said boldly, I used to be there. The doctor instantly produced a ten-pound note and insisted that it should be taken in advance. Mackenzie hesitated, and we suggested that it was premature, but the doctor was firm. If an old scholar mayn't assist one younger than himself, he said, I don't know when one man may aid another. And this is no alms. It is simply a pledge for work to be done. Mackenzie took the money, muttering something of an assurance that, as far as his ability went, the work should be done well. 
It should certainly, he said, be done diligently. When money had passed, of course, the thing was settled. But in truth, the banknote had been given, not from judgment in settling the matter, but from the generous impulse of the moment. There was, however, no receding. The doctor expressed by no hint a doubt as to the safety of his manuscript. He was by far too fine a gentleman to give the man whom he employed pain in that direction. If there were risk, he would now run the risk, and so the thing was settled. We did not, however, give the manuscript on that occasion into Mackenzie's hands, but took it down afterwards, locked in an old dispatch box of our own, to the spotted dog, and left the box with the key of it in the hands of Mrs. Grimes. Again we went up into that lady's bedroom and saw that the big table had been placed by the window for Mackenzie's accommodation. It so nearly filled the room that, as we observed, John Grimes could not get round at all to his side of the bed. It was arranged that Mackenzie was to begin on the morrow. End of The Spotted Dog, Part 1, The Attempt End of Section 15 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina